So we're going to go ahead and just jump straight into our second presentation, Revelations, Millennium, and the Lake of Fire. And uh, let's bow our head uh, for another word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much again for your word. We thank you for the truths that we've been learning here at Discover Prophecy. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to be our teacher, Father, that as we hear your word preached, Lord, that we would uh, understand, Lord, that your spirit would give us understanding and that you would help us, Lord, to be like the Bible Bereans, that we would go home and that we would search these things out for ourselves, that we would make sure that what is being shared is certain and true according to your word. And Father, we pray that you would bless us now as we open your holy word, Lord, help us to understand this topic of hell and the millennium. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The salesman noticed that she was a little bit different. Her hair, her clothing, and her jewelry were all a little bit different. But he couldn't quite figure out just what it was that set her apart. And as they were speaking together, she said, I don't go to church anymore. I used to, but I don't anymore. Although I do sort of, she said. Curious, he asked her what she meant by this, and she said, well, when I was growing up, I went to church every week. And in sermon after sermon, the pastor would talk about an eternally burning hell where sinners would be tortured forever in excruciating pain. I wondered about a God that would do that to people, she said. And finally, I decided that if that was what God was really like, then I'd be better off without him. And so I quit going to church, she said, with an air of determination. And then she added, but I still go, sort of. She read the question on his face and said, well, these days I'm a witch. And she explained how she gathered regularly with other witches, a lot like church, she, she said. And uh, she described some of what they did. And it all made sense now, the way she looked, her hair, her clothing, and her jewelry. And the salesman realized the tragedy of this very sad situation. Here was a young lady who had been driven out of the church and into the arms of the devil himself by an idea that is very common and prevalent in many churches today. Many people were taught as children what this young woman was taught, and that God will burn unrepentant sinners forever and ever for the sins that they've committed in this short life. So tonight we want to look carefully at what the Bible says on this topic, and we'll see that the way we understand hellfire, it impacts the way we view God, the way that we see his character. Hell is a hot topic. There's no doubt about that, friends. There have been many misunderstandings about the topic of hell. Hellfire, as many people have understood it, has caused many people to doubt God's character of love. And this evening, we want to cut through those misunderstandings and arrive at Bible truths. But in order to understand hell, we need to look at it in its chronological context, which means we need to understand how it relates to the 1,000 years also known as the millennium of Bible prophecy. So let's jump in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. We'll spend quite a bit of time in Revelation 20, so if you want to follow along in your own Bibles, I'd encourage you to, to do that uh, as much as possible, or you can look at it here on the screen with me. So Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, Then I, John, saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long? 
a thousand years. It continues, and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls, that is the people who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And the Bible says, and they lived and reigned with Christ for how long? A thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Bible continues in verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with them for how long? A thousand years. Now you'll notice that the Bible speaks of a second death. And I'll be straightforward with you tonight and let you know right away that I believe that hell is the second death. I'll explain as we continue. Now, if you have a second death, that, must, that means that there must be a first death, right? And we've looked at that already here this evening, uh, what the first death is. It's really just a sleep until the first resurrection, which takes place when? At the last trumpet, at the coming of Christ. So those who have part in this first resurrection, the Bible says they are blessed and holy, and the second death has no power over them. And why is that, friends? It's because they're saved. It's because they've committed their lives to Christ and they are secure in him. Now, there are actually two resurrections in scripture. Jesus said this in John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. He said, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of what? The resurrection of life and those who have done well, or sorry, those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Okay, so here we have the millennium book ended by two resurrections. The first is the resurrection of life, where the righteous dead are raised to life at the coming of Christ. And then the second resurrection, which is the resurrection of condemnation, where the wicked are raised at the end of the thousand years. And now how do we know that the, the wicked are raised at the end of the thousand years? Well, the Bible told us right there in Revelation chapter 20, verse 5, we read it already, but we'll read it again. It says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Okay, so that is the wicked dead. Now you've heard me say before throughout our prophecy series that there will be two groups of people um, at, the, at, at the end of time. And that is correct. There will be only two groups. There will be the righteous and there will be the wicked. But let me explain it just a little bit further here. There will be the righteous living, and then there will be the righteous dead, those that have fallen asleep in Christ. Then there will be the wicked living, those that are alive when, when, Christ, um, when Christ comes, and then there will be the wicked dead, those that have fall, fallen asleep uh, throughout the last uh, 6,000 years. So everyone who has ever lived falls into one of these four categories, okay? Does that make sense? Okay, so with that being said, there are five events that begin the millennium. The first is the second coming of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, hopefully that will be all of us, amen? We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, that is, those who have died in Christ. 
The Bible continues. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a what? A whisper? A shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. It continues. It says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. What a glorious day this will be, right? I cannot wait for that day. The Bible continues, Paul, Paul continues to describe this event in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 53. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, the Bible says. We're not all going to die before Christ comes, but we will all be changed when he comes. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So from these verses, we see that at the second coming, the righteous dead are resurrected. They're caught up to meet the Lord in the air at his coming. And third, the third event that uh, begins the millennium is that the living righteous will be translated. That means they will go to heaven without seeing death. Now, what about the wicked? Well, they will be slain by the brightness of Christ's coming. Look at what 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 says. It says, And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Thus the wicked will be destroyed by the presence and the glory of the Lord when he comes. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 9 says, For our God is what? A consuming fire. So friends, sinners cannot stand in the presence of God and live. The righteous will be able to stand in his presence only by the grace and mercy of God. Amen? 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 describes this. It says, All, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now what about Satan? What will happen to him? Well, Satan will be bound at the beginning of the millennium. Revelation 20, verse 1 and 2 describes this. It says, Then I, John, saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long? A thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So here we see that the devil is bound to this earth, to the bottomless pit, the Bible says. Now the question begs to be asked, well, what is this bottomless pit? Well, the phrase comes from the Greek word abusos, which can be translated abyss, okay? In the LXX, which is the Greek uh, Septuagint, that is the Hebrew scriptures translated into Greek, um, this same word is used to describe the earth that was without form and void in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. So this word abusos. So what exactly is he bound with? Well, he's bound with a chain of darkness to this desolate earth with absolutely no one to tempt. 
He's stuck here on this earth to think about all the evil that he's caused for all of these millennia. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23, also describes the condition of the earth during the millennium. It says this, I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. That would be abusos in the Greek for the LXX, the Septuagint. Okay, I beheld the earth, and it was indeed without form and void, and the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heaven had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make a full end. So here we see that Jeremiah saw the earth void of people. All the cities were broken down, and it was like a wilderness. It was completely desolate, the Bible says. So Satan is bound to this desolate world for 1,000 years, and he has absolutely no one to tempt, no one to deceive. And, because, and that is because the wicked are simply sleeping until the second resurrection, right? The resurrection of condemnation. And where are God's people during this time? They're in heaven, right? And uh, the righteous living and then the righteous dead have been resurrected and they're all up in heaven. And what will the righteous be doing during the thousand years? Will we just be playing harps? No, we will be doing a lot more than that, friends. The Bible tells us in Revelation 20, verse 4, John writes this. He says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. This is the righteous. Then I saw the souls, that is the people who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image. Friends, we don't want to worship the beast or his image, do we? And had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hand, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the righteous, that is those who have witnessed for Jesus, those who are faithful to the word of God, those that, that didn't worship the beast or his image or receive his mark, the righteous saved will sit on thrones, the Bible says, and judgment is committed to them. So Paul understood this concept of judgment during the millennium, and he said this. He said in 1 Corinthians 6, 1, he said, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? So Paul makes it clear that God's people will judge the world and they will even judge angels, the Bible says. Now, way back in our fourth presentation, we studied about heaven's final judgment when we looked at the longest Bible prophecy uh, in the book of Daniel. And we saw that it covered this first phase of the judgment, which, is, which we call the pre-advent investigative judgment. But there are actually three phases to the judgment, and I'll explain. In this first phase, we saw that all of heaven and all of the onlooking universe, they were interested to see who would be their new next-door neighbors up in heaven. You would want to know who your neighbors are, right? When they, when they move into your neighborhood, you, you want to know that, that this person is safe to be in your neighborhood, right? Likewise, that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to make sure that we were safe to bring to heaven and that sin would not rise up again a second time. Now, remember this important point when it comes to the judgment. The judgment isn't because God doesn't know who's saved and who's lost. God already knows that, doesn't he? Because God knows 
everything. He knows the end from the beginning, the Bible says. But this phase of the judgment is to demonstrate God's justice and his mercy to the onlooking universe. It's very important because his character has been attacked by Satan during that war in heaven. So the second phase of this judgment is called the post-millennial judgment. And during this time of the millennium, God's people find out why certain people are saved and why some people are lost. It's like a judicial review. They're reviewing the books. And friends, I'm sure that there will be some surprises when we get there to heaven, don't you think? We will see some people that we didn't expect to see there, and then some people we expected to be there are not there. And we will want to know why, won't we? We will want to know why. And during this time, God will reveal that he did all that he could to save each and every person on this planet. And that those who aren't there aren't there because they have rejected Christ. They rejected all the opportunities that God gave them to know him and to, to experience his saving grace. And they have rejected the gospel invitation. The third and final phase of the judgment is the post-millennial executive judgment, which takes place after the millennium, and it culminates in the total and final eradication of the devil, his angels, as well as sin and sinners. And this is hellfire, which is what we're going to take a look at here in a few moments. So finally, the millennium closes. The 1,000 years end, and here are five things that end the millennium. Number one, the wicked are raised. All, this is all the wicked that have ever lived are raised all at once. This is a very significant thing, friends. This is going to be a lot of people. But the Bible says, but the rest of the dead, that is the wicked, they did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Okay? Next, the next event that happens is that the new Jerusalem descends. Revelation 21 verse 2 says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then, as all the wicked are raised, the third event happens, and that is that Satan is released from his prison. You know, he hasn't been able to tempt anybody for how long? A thousand years, and now he has his chance once again to do what the devil does best. He goes out and he tries to deceive people, and so he goes to deceive all the wicked. The Bible describes this in Revelation 20, verse 7. It says, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are, at, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. This is a lot of people, friends, all the wicked that have ever lived. And the next event that happens of the millennium is this. The wicked and Satan are completely destroyed. Let's take a look at this. The Bible says in Revelation 20 verse 9, it continues, says they, that is the wicked, they went up on the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and did what? It devoured them. Friends, this is hellfire. It totally consumes and it totally destroys the wicked. <coughs> So hell takes place here on this earth, not some strange place underground. And I know that may be a new concept to some of you, but hell takes place here on this earth. Here the wicked are deceived by Satan into thinking that they can take the city. And they try to take by force what they refuse to receive by grace. God offered it to them as a free gift, didn't he? Yet they have rejected him time and time again. And now they try to take by force 
what they have already refused to receive by grace. Now they want in, just like those who were outside of the ark wanted in when the rain started to fall. But it's simply too late. It's too late. They've rejected all the opportunities that God has given them, and it's clear that they haven't repented. They are not sorrowful for their sins. Probation is closed. The Bible says, Then the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20, 14 and 15 also says this. It says, Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So here we see that the devil and all those that are not written in the book of life will be cast and destroyed, cast into the lake of fire, which means that they will be destroyed in hellfire, which is, is it the first death or the second death? It is the second death, the Bible says. So after the wicked and the devil are destroyed, the next thing that John sees is the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21 verse 1 says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. So God will create a beautiful new world for us. Amen? It will be perfect. It will be absolutely wonderful. No more pain, no more heartache, no more suffering. Uh, We want to be a part of that new world. Amen? Amen. Notice what John says. He also says this. He says, there was no more sea. Now, where was John when he wrote this? He was in exile on the island of Patmos. What was separating him from everyone that he loved? The sea. And I just love how he writes in here. He says, and there was no more sea. Friends, in the new earth, There will be no more separation. Amen? No more separation from loved ones. No more separation from friends. It will be a beautiful place that all of us will want to be. Amen? Jesus also told us that God's people would one day inherit the earth. In Matthew 5, 5, Jesus said this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus knew that he would create a new heavens and a new earth for his people. So let's review these five events quickly that close the millennium. We just covered it. The first is the wicked are raised. The second, the new Jerusalem descends. Third, Satan is released from his prison. Fourth, the wicked and Satan are destroyed and the earth and heaven are made new. So now that we understand the sequence of events surrounding the millennium, let's look now at the topic of hell and some of the biblical words that are used to describe hellfire. The word hell occurs 54 times in the King James Bible, 31 times it occurs in the Old Testament where it's translated from the Hebrew word Sheol. I think that's the word that we taught you earlier, right? No, no, that was a different word actually. Yeah, abusos, I think we covered that. So this is a different Hebrew word called Sheol, okay? This word actually means grave, okay? And modern translations like the English Standard Version and the New American Standard Bible they actually just, they simply transliterate this word and they just leave it as the Hebrew word Sheol. They don't even try to assign a meaning to it. It's kind of interesting. But the NIV version, translated in 1984, translates it grave 84% of the time, showing you that the translators know that it really means grave. In the New Testament, the, the word hell is translated from the Greek word Hades and Gehenna. 
The word Gehenna means a place of burning or destruction. And the word Hades simply means grave, like the Old Testament word Sheol. Okay? So keep these important Bible words in mind as you read and as you study this topic out at home. Every time you read that word Sheol, uh, it's, you can basically substitute the word grave. And I hope you understand that passage a lot better. So here are the three questions that we're going to answer right now. Question number one, what is hell? Question two, where is hell? And question three, how long is hell? Now we've actually already answered the first two questions, believe it or not. Question number one, when, when is hell? Well, hell is not happening right now. Isn't that good news? Amen. Nobody is burning in hell right now. Praise God. That is good news, friends. It happens at the end of the millennium when the fire comes from God and it devours the wicked as they're trying to destroy the city. Question two, where is hell? Well, hell happens right here on this earth. The wicked are raised from their graves and they try to attack God's people and God's holy city and fire comes down and devours them. And question three, how long is hell? Well, this question can be easily answered as well. We've learned from our presentation earlier tonight that humans are not naturally immortal, right? We are mortal. That means we are subject to death. In fact, we saw earlier tonight in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, that immortality is actually a gift from God that we receive when? We receive it at the second coming of Jesus. For the Bible says, for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So we are currently mortal, but when Christ comes, he will give us immortality. Amen. Romans 6.23 says this. It says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So here Paul is particularly referring to the second death. The wages of sin is eternal separation from God in the second death. But praise God, we can accept that free gift. Amen? We can accept that free gift that God has so freely given to us. The Bible tells us that there are only two options for us. John 3.16 tells us what those options are. Let's say it together. It's a very common verse that we all know. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So friends, from this verse, people will either perish from hellfire or they will have everlasting life, right? Those are the only two options. Think about this, though. To live forever in an, eternally, in, a, in an eternally burning hell would also be eternal life, wouldn't it? Yeah. It wouldn't be much of a life, but it would still be eternal life. God would be sustaining them to be tortured throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. It would also be eternal life. But notice that that is not one of the two options that are given in this verse. People will either perish perish or they will have everlasting life. It's absolutely critical to understand this simple point. If man is not immortal, then there is no need for hell to burn throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. Let me say that again. If man is not immortal, then there is no need for hell to burn throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. Let me say it another way. The foundational reason that hell has been assumed to be eternal is that man has been assumed to be immortal and thus indestructible. 
Friends, if man is not immortal, then there is no need to insist that hell will last through the ceaseless ages of eternity. Clearly, the Bible teaches that hell is actually hot enough to totally destroy sin and sinners forever. Revelation 20 verse 9 says this, They, that is the wicked, went up on the breadth of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Jesus also taught that hell would, that hellfire would completely destroy a person. Matthew 10 verse 28 says this, Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body, both, both soul and body. Where? In hell. Friends, hell ultimately destroys a person, destroys a person completely, but it doesn't continue to burn for all eternity. Instead, they are burnt to ashes, just like Satan. Look at what the Bible says here in Ezekiel 28, verse 18. It, it describes the destruction of Satan here in these words. It says, therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you. And I turned you to what? Ashes. To ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. So friends, contrary to popular belief, Satan is not the one in charge of hell. In fact, as we see from this verse here, Satan will be reduced to what? Ashes. To ashes. God's word is clear, friends. Look at how hot hell is described here in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 and 3. It says, For behold, the day is coming. Notice, hell is not burning in Malachi's day. He says, For the day, it says, Behold, the day is coming. So it's future. Burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be what? Stubble. Stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. It continues, it says, You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be, what? Ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. So those who don't love God will not be given immortality. They will be burned up and they will be turned to ashes, just like Satan will. Notice that this will be done when? It says, on the day on the day that the Lord does this, meaning that hellfire is not going to last forever. Psalm 37 verse 10 says, For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. Verse 20, Psalm 37 verse 20 says, But the wicked shall perish. perish. There's that word again, perish. And the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish into what? Smoke. Into smoke they shall vanish away. Okay, so what about eternal fire? What about eternal fire? Let's look at that. The Bible does speak about eternal fire in Jude 7. It says this, it says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as what? An example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So Jude 7 tells us explicitly that Sodom and Gomorrah are an example of, of what? Eternal fire, right? Of eternal fire. Now, are Sodom and Gomorrah still burning? No, no they are not. Clearly, they are not still burning. Second Peter 2 verse 6 tells us what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. It says this, it says, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into what? 
ashes condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So these wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were burned to ashes, showing us what would later happen to those who would live ungodly, the Bible says. So the Bible also speaks about everlasting punishments. Look at what it says in Matthew 25, verse 46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into what? Eternal life. So this simply means that punishment has everlasting or eternal consequences. The results of hellfire are eternal, friends. The wicked will cease to be, right? Notice that the phrase is everlasting punishment, not eternal punishing, like continual punishing. There's a big difference there, friends. The only reason someone would insist that this phrase means eternal conscious torment is if they already believe in the non-biblical teaching that man is naturally immortal. And what did we discover in our last presentation? We are mortal. We are mortal. And we will be given immortality at the second coming of Christ. So the question is, is how long is forever and ever? This might seem like an unusual question to some, but the Bible does use this, uh, this phrase forever in the context of final punishment. So let's take a look at this, uh, see if we can understand it. Revelation chapter 14, verse 11, the Bible says, And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and who receives the mark of his name. Here's another, here's another example of it used, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The Bible says, The devil who deceived them, that's what he does, right? He just deceives people. That is what the devil does best. The Bible calls him the father of lies. He is the author of fake news, friends. He is the author of fake news. So the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. But notice the verse just before this. It says in verse 9, however, that fire came down from God out of heaven and did what? It devoured them. So evidently forever and ever is the same as that word devoured. Now, when you devoured your lunch today, did you eat it forever and ever? Yes. <laughs> you consumed it, right? It, it simply means that you consumed it all, right? You, you devoured it. You were, you were very hungry and you just ate it up. So forever means as long as a thing shall last. So in the Bible, forever and ever doesn't always mean forever and ever like you and I think of forever and ever. I'll tell you why. Let's look at this. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 6, the Bible says, Then his master shall bring him to the judges, and he shall bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him how long? Forever. forever. Now, how long did this slave serve his master? As long as he lived, right? As long as he lived. And that would be for forever, right? As, as long as he lived until he died. Another example of this is found in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 22, where it says this, But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there. How long? Forever. forever. But six verses later in this same chapter, it says that he was there for how long? As long as he lived. 
Now, Samuel is not still in the temple, right? There is no temple. There is no temple. The temple was destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. We covered that in one of our earlier presentations. And Samuel died much, much earlier before AD 70. But the Bible says that he would remain there forever. So he was there as long as he lived. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, it says that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So he was there just three days and three nights. But in the next chapter over, he describes it in this way. <clears throat> Jonah 2.6, it says, The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pits, O Lord my God. So how long was Jonah in the whale for? Three days, three days and three nights. But to him it seemed like forever. And friends, I'm sure it would have seemed like forever for you or for me had we been in that situation, right? Being inside of a whale would, for any length of time would seem like forever. The word forever has to be interpreted and translated in a way that is consistent with the original language and is also consistent with everything else that the Bible has to say on the subject of death. There has to be consistency, friends. So hellfire lasts as long as it takes for the wicked to be burned up, including the devil and his angels. And God does not enjoy this process, friends. He does not enjoy it at all because he even loves the lost. And that's what kind of God he is. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is what? Love. God is love. Everything that he does is out of love because love is the essence of his character. In fact, God doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18, 23, and 32 says, Do I have any pleasure? Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Says the Lord God. And not that he should turn from his ways and live. For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, do what? Turn and live. Instead, friends, God wants people to turn to him and live. Turn to him and experience eternal life. The Bible says in 2, Thess 2 Peter 3, 9, For the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Now, what is his promise? He said, I will come again. That was his promise, right? I will come again. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants all to come to repentance, friends. But will everyone repent? No, they will not. Unfortunately, they won't. But thankfully, God has blessed us with time at this moment to spread the gospel. Amen? He has given us a window of time, a window of opportunity where we have freedom in this country still to share the good news with others. And I pray that God will help us to do just that. Amen? That as many as possible might be saved. The next verse says this in 2 Peter 3, verse 10. It says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be what? Burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, since it's all going to be destroyed, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of God. Friends, did you know that you can hasten the coming of God? How can you do that? You can be obedient to him and you can share the good news. Amen? You can be one of his evangelists. You can be a missionary where you live in your workplace, in your community. 
God can use you to help hasten his coming, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We look forward to that, don't we? We can look forward to a new heavens and a new earth. No more sin, no more pain, no more heartache. All things will be good. All things will be beautiful and lovely. And the good news, friends, is that God wants all of us to be there. And, more, and there's more good news, friends. And that is this, found in Nahum chapter 1, verse 9. According to the Bible, it says that affliction will not rise up again the second time. Friends, sin and evil will be gone forever. And thank God it will never come back. We will have learned our lesson. Amen? We will have learned our lesson. Jesus will have come and rescued us. And uh, sin is a one-time thing, friends, and it's on its way out. Praise the Lord. Imagine God reserving a corner of the universe where people would be burned and tortured for all of eternity. It's unthinkable, friends. Imagine traveling throughout the universe from one place to another, knowing that there are people over there in this certain section of the universe, some of whom you know, maybe some of your neighbors, maybe some... God forbid, some of our family that are suffering indescribably. A perfect universe with a permanent stain? Impossible, friends. Impossible. God is going to clean up this universe. Amen? He's going to clean up this universe. Sin and suffering will be gone. The fire that God sends is a fire that consumes. It's a fire that completely devours the wicked. Now, I've heard people say, if hell fire doesn't burn forever and ever, what motivation do people have to be saved? Have you ever heard this? It's, it's a common thing. People use it basically as a scare tactic. For one thing, friends, you are forgetting how awful it is to be burned. But there's something even more serious to consider than that. The worst part of hell fire is knowing that you are going to be eternally separated from God for all of eternity. That is the worst thing, friends. That is the agony of hellfire, knowing that you will be eternally separated from God, knowing that you could have had life, but now you have nothing but death. When you could have lived forever, you now cease to exist. And while the the rest of the universe is going to live on happily for all of eternity, and you are going to be dead as though you have never been. But it doesn't have to be that way, friends. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you can be confident that you will experience the blessings of an eternity with Jesus. 1 John 5, verse 12 tells us that he who has the Son has life, and he who hath not the Son of God hath not life. Friends, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Amen? The wind and the waves will blow in these last days, but we want to keep our eyes fixed on on Jesus. There will be all sorts of false doctrine, all sorts of miracles and all these things taking place, false miracles, but we must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and we need to keep our eyes on his word too. Amen? Amen. And studying it. Many years ago, there was a story that appeared on the front page of a newspaper and uh, a young 18-year-old girl was on her way home and she was driving from her boyfriend's house late at night. She wasn't drunk, but she was tired, and she ended up wrecking her car on the freeway. 
First, a meat delivery man stopped to help, and then an off-duty police officer stopped, and she was able to talk with them. At first, she wasn't badly hurt at first, but there were two major issues. One, she was stuck. Her feet were trapped in the vehicle, and the other problem was that the car was on fire. One would-be rescuer tried to go through the front door while the other tried to go through the back door in an attempt to rescue her, but the heat and the flames drove them back. One man did so much to try to help her that the flesh on his hand burned away, down to the bone on one part of his hand. That's how much he did to try and save her. And she took hold of one man's arm and said, please don't leave me here, I'm going to die. And they literally had to pull away from her friends. And she spoke to them for about 30 seconds and then went quiet. Everything went quiet. The men said it was awful and they just cried. And if you and I would have been there, you would have cried too. Approximately 6,000 years ago, there was a wreck in the Garden of Eden. And humanity was trapped in sin. But Jesus stopped. Praise God. Jesus stopped and he did more than just lose the flesh on his hands. He gave his entire life for you and for me. What will you do with that, friends? What will you do with the sacrifice that Christ has made on your behalf? Tonight he knocks on the door of your heart. And he's knocking. And we've learned something about the character of God tonight. God isn't the tyrant that many people have made him out to be. He's a God of love. How will you respond to his love? He's done everything he can to prepare a perfect place for you. And he wants you and me to be there. He wants our family to be there. He wants our friends to be there, our neighbors and even our enemies, friends. He wants them to be there. But we have to turn to him. Friends, will you choose to live each day for Christ? Will you choose to put him first in your life? If that's your desire today, I invite you to stand with me as we pray. If you want to put him first in your life and live for Jesus 100%. Praise God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we've seen tonight from your word that you are a God of love. And Lord, you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Lord, but that you desire for everyone to turn to you and live. And Lord, we want to turn to you tonight, Lord, with, with everything that we have, with everything that we are. Lord, we want to be 100% sold out and committed to you. Lord, we believe that we're living in the last days. And Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be ready and that you, would, that you would give us the courage, Lord, and the boldness to share your truth and your love with those that we come in contact with. Lord, we know that you don't want anyone to perish, but you want all to come to repentance. Lord, may you hold back the winds of strife a little longer, Lord, that, that more people might be able to hear the message of the everlasting gospel. Lord, be with us. Lord, may we live each day for you. 100%. We're standing today, Lord, because we want to live for you. We want to choose to follow you. We want to be your disciples. We want to follow the Lamb wherever he leads us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue to lead us step by step, moment by moment. We, and this is our prayer, Lord. And we ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.